I have this mantra that always goes off in my head right when I begin a Dharma talk here, and it's all in? <laughs> Everybody in? <laughs> People just kind of file in, you know, just one at a time, you know, in a little space of the door. Just <laughs> so <I'm> all in? <laughs> Just notice how that repeats itself every night. <laughs> so the title for tonight's talk is Love's House, Discovering Our True Identity. And what that means will become more clear, hopefully, as the talk unfolds. So one of the greatest attachments that the Buddha proclaimed that we had was the attachment to this sense of self or this identity. We somehow take ourselves to be something that we really aren't. In Buddhism, uh, in Pali, the word is... uh, Sakaya Ditti. And Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's done most of the translations of the discourses, translates it now as identity view. Identity view. Other times it was called personality view. So it's the, the view we have of who we take ourselves to be. And the word uh, Sakaya Ditti, so Ditti means. Uh, to hold a wrong view or a wrong belief. And uh, Sakaya means the group of mind and body phenomena. So it's the wrong belief or view about our mind and body phenomena. And it's not that we don't have a mind. We know that we do. And if you weren't sure, (laughs) you found out this week (laughs) that we have a mind and we have a body. It's just the way we view it gives rise to a great deal of suffering, a great deal of dukkha. In Western psychology, the last hundred years, as this has started to be explored, the word is ego the same thing, ego. The word ego is used for the same kind of um, a fixation of different components, parts of ourselves that forms a kind of egoic uh, identity. And my teacher Hamid, uh, uh, teacher in the Diamond Heart School, describes ego as a psychic structure that is based on crystallized beliefs about who we are and our ideas about the world and what the world is, our, our worldview. And that these views and these ideas get crystallized. I really like the word crystallized because I always imagine a crystal. It's this, this kind of sometimes a little bit opaque, a little transparent, but it's, it's solid 
and and yet it can be broken apart in, in different components, broken up. And this is what happens for us as we take these different elements or in, in Buddhist psychology they call dhammas, these momentary arising conditions. And we view them as solid in some way. And in, in, in science now, of course, in Western scientific experiments and theories, they're seeing that actually what we thought was solid when put under these high-powered microscopes isn't solid at all. That, in fact, there's a lot of space with a lot of atoms and molecules bouncing around. And it's even said that when the body, the physical body, is put under one of these high-powered uh, uh, microscopes, that what, what, the, what they see is that the body is made up of 95% space and about 5% matter. 95% space. <laughs> Getting close, right? Getting close to seeing what's, what's really there in the scientific world. So we're in our practice with our mindfulness and our investigation, we begin to uh, see this process of mind and this process of body that it isn't as fixed as we think it is, that the mind is changing all the time, the body sensations are changing all the time, the, the senses of the sights and sounds and tastes and smells and the sensations on our skin constantly changing. And, and yet, even though we see that, there's still a way that it seems like it's happening, all happening to someone. It's, it's referring back to me. Right? It all refers back to me. And when I think of me, then I think of this kind of solid core sense of me. Usually, it's an identification with the body. We usually take this body as, well, this is me. And then identify with the, uh, the, the internal experiences that happen through this body as me. So in Buddhist psychology, the Buddha breaks this down, what's actually occurring, into what's called the five aggregates. And these five aggregates are the mind and body process. There's five processes. So it's actually called processes, aggregates or bundles or processes. And the five aggregates are the body, the physical body, and then the four that make up the mind, which are the feelings or the, the vedna, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience of that changing uh, nature of experience, the feelings. Um, there's the perceptions, what we actually perceive through the, through the eyes and the memory, the mind. The, con the conceptions of the mental activity, all the, the, the data that's collected over time in the mind, and consciousness. These are the five processes that make up who we are. So the body, the feelings, the perceptions, the conceptions, the mental activity, and consciousness. And the Buddha says that what gives rise to our suffering is when we cling to these when we cling on and make them into something and miss the changing process. 
mix, miss that dynamic kind of alive changing process that's happening through each one of these aggregates. And so when we cling to that, cling to these processes and, and think that there is something fixed here, then we believe that there is an entity that is moving through time and space. And we identify with this body that in some ways is traveling through a canal towards death. Right? We're, trying, just, we're just going right down this tube, <laughs> heading for death, right? So I am born and I will die. And because we're identified with this body, and this is me, this is who I take myself to be, then we believe I am going to die. And when we are identified in this view and we're not really examining this very deeply or thoroughly, this gives rise to a lot of suffering. We hold on. I mean, we hold on for dear life. Life, dear life. We don't want to come to an end. <laughs> we don't want this body, this mind, to come to an end because we believe in this view that there is one that is born and there is one that will die. But the Buddha says, seen as it actually is with proper wisdom, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Seen as it actually is with proper wisdom, this is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So he's pointing directly to the way that we cling to the view. It's interesting because the Buddha didn't actually ever say there was not a self. In fact, he was asked in one of the um, discourses, he was asked directly, point blank, is there a self or is there not a self? This was 2,500 years ago. <laughs> still asking, we're still asking the same question. <laughs> It's one of those, for people who are really studying the Buddhist, Buddhist teachings, this question comes up again and again. Well, did the Buddha say there was a self or a not-self? What is that teaching about? But in this little uh, uh, piece here, it says, uh, um, uh, many books try to answer questions about no-self directly, but if you look at the Pali Canon, which is where the Buddhist discourses are, the earliest record of the Buddha's teachings, you won't find them addressed at all. In fact, the one place where the Buddha was asked point blank whether or not there was a self, he refused to answer. When later asked why, he said that to hold either that there is a self or that there is no self is to fall into extreme forms of wrong view that make the path of Buddhist practice impossible. Thus, the question should be put aside. <laughs> Isn't that right? <laughs> that if you take up one view or the other, it's an extreme view that opposes the other. So just <laughs> it makes the path impossible, put it aside. 
so we're not really addressing that question. That's not the question that's on the table. Is there a self or is there not a self? What we're looking at is what is this? <laughs> what is going on, right? We want to know well, what's going on that gives rise to our suffering. You know, again and again, we're, it's, it, the, the Buddhist teaching is pointing to the same question. What gives rise to our suffering? And what gives rise to our suffering is when we cling, when we hold on, when we grasp on to that which is not solid. We miss the changing dynamic process that is here all the time. And any time we fixate around something, it gives us something to hold on to because we think that somehow we need that or it's, it's some kind of support or it gives us some sense of self or identity. He's saying we need to look at all of that. We need to explore all of that and see if maybe there's some source of our pain here. There's something that we can discover that perhaps can help us let go. We can see in our meditations how easy it is to get to characterize ourselves around a particular thought or a or a set of beliefs that we hold in our mind you can see it around even how you may think of yourself as a meditator right depending on certain experiences you may think that you're a good meditator or you may think you're a bad meditator and you can get a whole identity around what kind of meditator you are just based on the kind of thoughts that you're thinking about your practice. And usually they're completely incorrect. You know, the, one teacher said to me once, um, don't evaluate your practice, because what would you be basing that evaluation on? You're just going around and around in your own mind. It's a feedback loop, right? And how can you measure something when you don't have all the information? Don't evaluate your practice. So we can see how any thought we pick up, you know, whether we um, are doing we're, we're doing well in our job, or we're a bad mother, or um, you know, uh, I I'm not I'm a sick person, or. I'm a very unattractive person, or I'm very successful. I mean, any, any kind of thought, we can begin to shape a whole sense of who we are around that thought without really examining what's happening. And it's this kind of belief, it's this kind of thought process that actually holds the crystallization together. It holds the identity together. It holds the sense of who we take ourselves to be. And when it's not examined, we just live our lives through that identity. I was reminded of one of these little stories. Of, I, I teach a lot with James Barras, who's one of my dear friends and my colleagues who's, uh, who's, who began the Awakening Joy courses that are even popular here in New Zealand. And he loves to tell this story. It's actually, I think, his favorite story. He loves to tell a story when he was... Um, uh, uh, doing a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, and we were we both did our practice there in the early days together. And in the basement of the Insight Meditation Society, there is a uh, it's an old um, 
Maybe, I don't know, so who was living there? Some captain, or some very wealthy captain in the 1800s, and now it was bought and turned into this meditation center. So it had a, a basketball court or a gymnasium <laughs> in the basement. And some people did their walking meditation down in the gymnasium and these you know, wooden floors. And, and so James liked to go down and do his walking meditation there. And he was usually down there by himself, and he, there was this one time where he'd just been doing his walking meditation back and forth, and then someone came in the door to do their walking meditation. And as soon as that person walked in the door, his mind started saying, looking good, looking good. And, <laughs> and because he was because he was noting, you know, he was noting each mind moment. He's noting, looking good, <laughs> looking good, because that was the way he took shape in that moment. He just start, he just came together as a good meditator that was doing a good walking meditation back and forth because this person came in the door. And... <laughs> And he caught it, you know, and he had to chuckle to himself. You know, I think that's why he likes the story so well, because it's just, hey, what's that about? <laughs> you know, just one person walks in and, okay, you know, <laughs> how am I doing? <laughs> how do I look? <laughs> you know? And it's a way that the, that the, the identity just starts to take shape. It crystallizes. It takes form. And if it's not seen, you know, we live our lives like that. We live our lives in how we show up, who we appear, thinking that somehow that's going to make a difference. Somehow that's going to bring us what we're looking for, whether it's happiness or love or satisfaction or whatever, attention, whatever it is we're seeking. So our practice so much is about the seeing, what's moving through the mind, uh, the body, the emotions, seeing what kind of patterns, how we crystallize this uh, sense of ourselves and the world and the way we perceive the world and the way we perceive others, how we crystallize other people's identities (laughs) and make them into the image of our own projections and our own ideas and our own beliefs. Sometimes when I don't see somebody for a couple of years, I have to sort of remind myself that it's likely this person isn't the same person they were two years ago. Because I can imagine how, how easy it is to just go back into the same kind of behavior and the same kind of patterns as if this person hasn't changed at all. And so I like to remind myself, I like to give the person the benefit of the doubt <laughs> that they may have changed. <laughs> And that I have changed, and that that the way that we are together, the way that we're interacting together, may be completely different than it was the last time we were together. And it might even be helpful to even, you know, now that I'm saying it, I'm kind of thinking, well, maybe that's a good thing to remember all the time. (laughs) You know, maybe the person that I'm meeting isn't the person they were even an hour ago, or a week ago, or a month ago. And I know that I certainly aren't, am not. I'm changing all the time. And so coming into that, that meeting together, like, who are we now? Who are we today? What's happening in this dynamic now with us? Not carrying those 
beliefs and those ideas from the past. And living this way, perhaps meeting everything that we meet, everything that we come into contact, that perhaps it's changed or it's, or it's expressing something new or fresh or unique that hasn't been there before. You know, maybe even the stars in the sky or the way the sun is coming up in the morning or the clouds in the sky. Everything in this dynamic change. So what happens when we hold on to our identities so tightly? love this quote from W.H. Uh, Auden. We would rather be ruined than changed. We'd rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Then climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. In a way, that's what we're being asked to do. And I, I love the crossing the moment because maybe in the last moment we've been, we were holding on to our illusions and our beliefs and ideas, but then crossing that moment, there's another moment. We always get another moment. So we cross that last moment into this possibility and let our illusions die. And when we let our illusions die, then there's the possibility of opening to something that has never been born before. It could not have been born, because if it was born, it would be fixed in time. It would be permanent, waiting to be discovered. But nothing is fixed. Nothing is permanent. So therefore out of time. Last year I had an experience that I'd like to share with you. It was quite a revelation for me in um, going deeper into this understanding around identities. As many of you know that I've been involved in uh, Diamond Heart, which is a, a, a training, a school, a practice. Uh, I've been in the school for about eight or nine years. And uh, working with Hamid Ali and different teachers there. So really doing a, you know, a lot of investigation into the, the conditions of mind, body, personality, and really deeply in the practice of mindful presence. Really this very uh, connected, embodied practice of uh, mindful presence, which is just what we're doing here, you know, really grounding ourselves and connecting deeply with that mindful presence to see what can be revealed, what can be discovered in that. And one of the things that became very apparent to me was this pattern of this, this leaving, kind of this leaving myself. And you know how we, we can see that, how we're, you know, we're present, 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 and then all of a sudden we're not here. It's like we're, we're gone somewhere, and you know, maybe it might even be when we're in relating with somebody or you know, in a situation that we're not so present, we're not so connected. There's a way of just kind of 
leaving. And sometimes it's not so subtle. It's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to, I don't want to be here. This doesn't feel good. And I'm, I'm just going to leave. And I was really starting to explore the energetic patterning of that. You know, really, what happens? The sense of just leaving, you know, sort of disappearing. Not even disappearing sometimes. It's just that whole kind of just wanting to <laughs> escape or wanting to withdraw, you know. You know, sometimes not even just what we see here, you know, just that there's a moment or two where we're gone. You know, just like, where was I? Like, like in some kind of a cessation, like we're just gone. We just, and then we wake up and we come back. It's a little different. I'm actually talking about a way that we can start to feel in our personality, in our, our way of being, where we just want to back out. <laughs> We just don't feel very comfortable where we are, or we don't feel comfortable in our body. We don't feel comfortable in the situation. We're just wanting to just leave. And sometimes it's leaving the relationship, the person that we're talking with, or the situation. Sometimes it's even deeper than that, where we just don't even don't even know whether we want to be here anymore. There can be a sense that even this whole conditioned reality of being a person and a personality in this life and the duke it's like this is too much i want out and not that we're going to necessarily act on that but we can definitely start to feel that and know that it's like it's just too much we get overwhelmed or confused and i was really starting to look and notice that pattern in myself being very interested in that what is that what is this the sense of wanting to pull away, wanting to leave in different situations and different times. And so I was doing some journaling. I was in the morning sometimes. I sit down and I write about my experience and I sit and reflect and get a sense of what's happening at any particular time. And while I'm doing that, I'm also doing some inquiry and, and, and really sensing into my experience and I'm interested in my experience. And it's a very meditative kind of contemplation. I'm also doing some writing on it. And so this day... I was, I was just, this was up for me, and I was really feeling this, and uh, uh, very interested in it. And I got this image. This image just kind of came to me, and I saw myself in a room. And in this room, it was a circular room, and in the room there were a number of doors all around me. I'm in the center of the room, and I could see that on each door there was a sign and it was like a, 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 a what I would call an exit strategy it was a, a door that I could go through to leave myself and each one was a kind of identity that I could put on and then I wouldn't have to really be who I am I could walk through any door and walking through those doors I could see that then that on the other side there was something that would feel good, like I would get love or recognition or I'd be seen or I'd be heard in some way. And I started looking at the signs on the door to see what they were. And I saw that one door was good and lovable. I could walk through that door 
and put that one on. Oh, I could be good, <laughs> a good person and lovable. And then I'd feel better. I'd get love and people would like me and you know, I'd be happy because I'd be getting the response that I wanted to get. Another door was smart. Go through that door and then show up with smart intelligence. Then people like that. You know, get a lot of recognitions. You know, people like people who are smart. You know, I could be that one. You know, or special. Another door. You walk through a door that says, "Okay, now I'm special. Just put that one on. I'm a special person. I'm better than everybody." You know, don't you, people can just see how special I am. You know, and as I'm really special and I'm kind of shiny and radiant, then people will like that and I'll be loved and appreciated and seen. Another door was right. If I'm right. Just that, you know, I've got an opinion, I've got a view, and I know the way that things should be done, and I have authority, and I, you know, I'm right. That's a nice one, too. That feels good, just to know that I'm right. <laughs> Another door. There's doors all around. <laughs> Choose your door. And another door, attractive. You know, really make sure that the hair is in place and the makeup's on right, the clothes are good, the jewelry, you know, really make sure. And then people will notice and look good. Looking good. <laughs> <laughs> Looking good, you know. That's a, another good one to uh, hide behind. And then I saw there was a door with a sign, Invisible. And I could go through that door and then just kind of disappear. That was, I liked that door a lot. You know, then nobody would really have to see me at all. And I would just be in a nice, safe little place. And that felt good too. And then another door, the Dharma teacher persona. <laughs> now that one I could probably keep on all the time. <laughs> you know, just kind of, that one has its own, you know, look and feel and, you know, sense of uprightness and intelligence and authority, you know, keep people in their place. <laughs> you know? And so I could just see that I could walk at any time, I could walk through any of those doors and that it's likely love would be waiting for me on the other side. That love the love that I wanted and the love that I didn't know how to feel in myself is out there and I could get it by walking through one of those doors. But when I really felt myself in the middle of the room was I felt very helpless and I felt very small without, that, without any of those identities. When I just felt what was there without putting on any of those I felt very kind of unlovable and unworthy and kind of helpless and very small. And, and I realized that I did not want to sit in the middle of the room to feel that because it was too painful. And I was too lonely and I needed to get through one of the doors to get away from my vulnerability and my helplessness. And when I saw that, and I saw it so clearly, I saw that I did not want to go through any of those doors because I would be leaving 
myself. I would be leaving the most important part of myself that needed to be attended to, that it needed to really be with and feel. And I didn't want to leave myself. And for a number of weeks after that, I felt completely trapped in this room. I couldn't walk through any of the doors. And I was just caught in this helplessness. But I knew that I needed to stay there. And I was reminded of one of these poems of Rumi's that I've heard again and again, and I'm sure that this has something to do with what happened. Rumi says, If I'd known how savage love is, I'd have blocked the door of love's house, beaten the drum and shouted, Keep away! But I'm in the house, helpless. If I'd known how savage love is, I'd have blocked the door of love's house, beaten a drum, shouted, keep away, but I'm in the house, helpless. And I realized that I was in love's house, that I was pushed into the center of this house so that I could see myself in a way that I was too afraid to see myself in my most kind of raw vulnerability, my raw kind of helplessness, and all how I wanted to run away from that, run away from that, put on all these different masks, all these different identities, thinking that the love is out there, but the love was here in the house, in love's house where I needed to be for a while. It was love that pushed me there and that love that wouldn't let me out. Love was asking me to face myself, to face myself, to not run away, to not leave, to not put on some false identity, some false mask, to discover truly what's going on. Why? What is this feeling of helplessness? What is this feeling of unlovability, unworthiness? What is that? To face it, to look at it deeply. And I saw how otherwise I'd continually be reconstructing a sense of self. A sense of self from some idea, from some thought, from some belief, from some pattern that was conditioned on from my past and all the things my mom told me about and my father told me about and my my teachers and the culture and the magazines and everything that I was learning from and didn't know who I was and was constantly trying to find out who am I, who am I? And then, try, and then constructing all these different ideas and identities, thinking that somehow that was going to do it, and then constantly feeling the pain, feeling the disconnection, feeling the loss. And coming back to the truth of what was underlying. And some 
teachers say that this helplessness is the seat of the ego. It's at the base of the ego. It's what we're always trying to run from. It's what we're always trying to escape from. To get somewhere else, to leave ourselves so we don't have to feel that. We don't have to go into that core sense of vulnerability, of fragility, which sometimes can be felt as helplessness. And I think helplessness because the ego is completely incapable of making anything real because the whole construction is fabricated on the past, on the conditioned past. It's all crystallized from our old conditioned ideas and influences and beliefs. So Auden says, climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Let our illusions die. When we do this, when we get fixated like this, it's like water, the, the, the water turning to ice, crystallizing into ice, is flowing, fluid, pure, translucent, transparent water of life getting frozen into these little ice cube forms. Sokni Rinpoche says, fixating mind is like ice shaped in different forms. And that's what we do, it's that crystallizing, it's that ice cubes. Sometimes it feels cool and cold like ice cubes too. So we each have our doors. We each have our strategies, our exit strategies. This way the identity takes on all these different forms. It may be this your your door may have wealth on it, or power, or caregiver, or rescuer, or any of our different roles that we take on, mother, you know, or attorney or (laughs) doctor (laughs) you know anything we can walk through any door to 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 be some try to be somebody when I was talking about this with some somebody she she when I was telling her about the door she said oh yeah she said my doors she said my doors are carved in all these exquisite kind of designs and they're painted in all these colors just so I'll be really attracted you know really just yeah I want to walk through that door you know anything anything to get away to go through So it really brings the question, the question of who am I? Who am I? I'm not putting any of this on if I'm not identifying with my mind, with the patterns, with the beliefs. Who am I? What's here? We're not trying to get away from our personalities. It's not we're not trying to get rid of ourselves, we're not trying to annihilate ourselves. 
We're not trying to be no self. What we're trying to see is how we fixate around our habitual tendencies, we, how we fixate around our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and our ideas, how we, get, how we cling on, and how that gives shape to a particular kind of personality. And so then we're not able to really feel the, 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 the kind of the more essential, true part of ourselves that wants to come through in its beauty and its purity, its love, its clarity and strength and wisdom. This true, true expression of who we are that takes, still, still has a personality. The Buddha, it seems, had a personality came through in the discourses or his and you can see how his personality was different than like his sidekick Ananda. You know, Ananda had a whole different kind of personality. He was the one who could memorize all the discourses that the Buddha gave and you know and and, and remember them verbatim and then give those discourses to other people. It's a particular kind of personality, character. You know, as as opposed to different different disciples that the Buddha had. They all had different personalities. Or the different teachers, or the Dalai Lama has a quite a particular personality. <laughs> it's just coming through a unique expression. But these beautiful qualities of love and compassion and wisdom and clarity. John O'Donohue is an amazing poet. He said, in the human face, infinity becomes personal. In the human face, infinity becomes personal. Just some way that that unformed, unborn, called in Buddhism the deathless, that which cannot die has not been born, the unformed, the unconditioned comes through the mind and the body expresses itself through us. We are the vehicles. We are the, we are the form for that expression of this nature, of the Dharma, of the boundless love, the unformed love. Come through us, this mind, this body, and each one is uniquely formed in such a way to give rise to that expression. I think this is getting closer to what we're doing here. You know? Somehow finding what is that expression, what is that true purpose when we start to clear out the occlusions of our past, of our conditioning. What wants to come through? What wants to express itself? It's not like we, you know, we wake up and then we kind of become vegetables. You know, we just want to sit and do nothing. You know, know, it's not like we lose our mind and body. (laughs) Seems like we wake up through this mind and body and then we can give something back. We can 
that enlightenment or that awakening is an offering to others, to the world, beyond the world. This French psychoanalyst named Herbert Ben... ben, 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 ben I don't know French. How does... <laughs> B-E-N-O-I-T. Benoit. Huh? Benoit. Benoit. You sound lovely. Benoit. <laughs> Herbert Benoit. <laughs> now I can see French. Uh. <laughs> Another identity. <laughs> He talks about this kind of um this this kind of alchemy that happens, you know, kind of as a, a transmutation of emotional energy from the um more of the, the contracted, the occluded kinds of forces in our mind to uh to a metamorphosis that takes place that he likens to uh the the changing of coal into diamonds. And he says, the aim is not the destruction of the ego, but its transformation. When there is conscious acceptance of who we are, it's like the coal becoming denser and so blacker and more opaque and then being instantly transformed into a diamond that is perfectly transparent. transmuting to a diamond perfectly transparent where that sense of separation that sense of the boundaries of me and you and this and that just where is it's not so apparent this sort of transparent translucent reality where things are happening and appearing and taking shape and form and changing and shifting and we start to have a sense of what this nature is Dharma nature this body, mind, that, the sense of two, separation, starts to break down, starts to break up, not quite the way things appear. Someone said once, things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. (laughs) things are not as they appear nor are they otherwise so I think this is closer to what the Buddha woke up to and I want to end with um, what's called the Buddha's roar of enlightenment in the Dhammapada. And it's the it's the the speech that he made 
on the house builder. And the house builder, he identified as craving. That's what builds the house, this false house, this house of who we take ourselves to. And so this is what the Buddha said when he woke up. Seeking but not finding the house builder, I traveled through the round of countless births, Oh, painful is birth ever and again, but house builder, you have now been seen. You shall not build this house again. Your rafters have been broken down. And the rafters are the analogy for the passions of greed and hate. Your rafters have been broken down. Your ridgepole is demolished too. And the ridgepole is the ridgepole of ignorance. The rich pole that blinds the eye so we can't see what's true. My mind has now attained the unformed nirvana and reached the end of every kind of craving. House builder, you have now been seen. And you shall not build this house again. Let's sit for just a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.